though the rain and thunder may be above us, the Spirit of God is in this place. And let us ask Him to work in our lives today to push through all of the distractions and all the cares of this world that we might behold the glory of His Son, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, do that. Come and help us. We are weak, we are feeble, we are needy. We come to you like a Canaanite woman discarded and separated, asking for you to help us. Pleading with you, Lord, to show us your mercy today. Would you, Lord, enable us to see your wondrous grace and glory in your word. May it change us, may it save us. May, Lord, we be different as a result of this time in your word, we pray. Help us to see the wonder of Jesus who is complex and yet glorious. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I have had the hard but important duty over the years of counseling individuals who have felt so unworthy of God that they struggled to find any lasting peace with him. Some of them were so riddled with guilt in their lives over their past sins, that they believed they were beyond all hope of God's forgiveness and salvation. Others, who were Christians, still struggled at times to see their past as past, and were concerned that God might still harbor some anger against them due to some heinous action that they'd committed in their former lives. I remember one dear woman, as faithful a woman as I've ever known in the church, who found herself in a daily struggle to believe that God could actually love her when he knew all of her past transgressions and even her current struggles with sin. Now, it is true, my friends, that we are unworthy of God. And that we have no way in and of ourselves of making peace with him due to our fallen, sinful condition. As Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, the mind that is set on the flesh, that's us, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Our minds set on flesh, we're resistant to God, we're hostile to God. We don't want his law. Indeed, we cannot. We're broken. But God has gloriously provided a way in his grace to bring salvation to all his fallen people, even those who are the worst of the worst. As Paul again said in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul, the one who held the coats as they stoned Stephen. Paul, the one who went from city to city arresting Christians. Paul, the one who was the persecutor of Jesus and his people. Paul, the one who found Christ, then says, I'm the worst. So today... As we consider Matthew's presentation of this Canaanite woman who came to Jesus in a Gentile land, we're going to see that no one, no one is too separated from God to be saved by God. 
No one is too separated from God to be saved by God. Now before we look to our text, I want to show you just a little snippet of what the Old Testament scriptures had to say about these people, the Canaanites. And I want you to see this for yourself because I want it to sink into your minds just how separated these people were, as well as this desperate woman in Matthew 15, just how separated these people were from God. And so I'm going to ask you to turn, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 6, to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, hold your hand in Matthew, but Genesis 9, page 6 in your pew Bible. Genesis 9, and I'm going to read verses 18 through 27, and I want you to see the first mention of Canaan and the Canaanites. Matthew chapter 9, excuse me, Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 says this. This is right after the flood, and Noah and his wife and children and their wives were delivered. It says, verse 18 of Genesis 9, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So everyone on the earth has come from either Shem, Ham, or Japheth. Noah, verse 20, began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Pause right there. Noah sinned. This next Adam, this next representative of mankind, continued as the old, and he succumbed to the flesh, and he sinned. And verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, there's that name again, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, what this is, is the son of Noah acting to bring about shame and humiliation to his father. This is a man who evidently doesn't have a great deal of respect for his father. And he sees his father in this sinful condition, in his naked condition, and he wants others to see it. Verse 23, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Now, we could say an awful lot here in this text. And we're not going to get bogged down other than simply to say that Canaan, the son of Ham, he was cursed by Noah and he would now serve the rest of Noah's sons, especially Shem, whose God was the Lord. Sin has consequences and in God's sovereignty, this was the consequence. Cain would be a servant. He would be under the rest of God's people. Now, look over at chapter 12. We flash forward in the book of Genesis. We see God beginning to work with one man from whom a family would come, for whom the blessing would come to all of the world, the man Abram, or Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, look at verses 1 through 6. 
This is page 8 in your pew Bible. Genesis 12, 1 through 6. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's gospel promise there, my friends. And then verse 4, so Abram went, the Lord, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So what is God doing here? Well, the land of the Canaanites was given to Abraham the father of Israel. The land of Canaan would be given to the people of Israel, but notice, my friends, that God promised Abraham that all the families of the earth, including the Canaanites, would be blessed through Abram. Look at just one more passage with me. Go over to the book of Judges, page 188 in your pew Bible. The book of Judges, chapter 3, page 188 in your pew Bible. We spent several months studying through the book of Judges here in these sermons. And I want you to consider with me again the first three verses of Judges chapter 3. Judges 3, 1 through 3 says, Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Labo Hamath. So the Lord left the Canaanites and these other groups who were connected to the Canaanites to test his unfaithful people, Israel, in the land of Canaan, where he had once brought them under Moses and then Joshua, uprooted the Canaanites out, and gave them the land that he promised to Abram. But now the Canaanites have been left, and they have been left there to be a test to God's idolatrous people. And they battled with Israel. If you know the rest of the Old Testament, you know that the Canaanites and others, they battled with Israel for centuries. As the Canaanites became enemy number one of the people Israel. So my friends, the Canaanites were the God-rejecting, Israel-hating, cursed enemies of the Jews. You cannot get much more separated from God and his people than the Canaanites. There's really no one else who you could say is more distant from God, from his good favor, than the Canaanites. However, my friends, no one is too separated from God to be saved. 
by God. Now return to Matthew 15 with me. Pew Bible, page 770. Pew Bible, page 770, if you're using one. Matthew 15, and consider here with me the desperate Canaanite woman who came to Jesus. And first of all, note that Jesus left the region of Galilee, and he went up north into the Gentile lands. Look at chapter 15, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. He went away from that place, and he withdrew to Gentile lands up north. Now, recall a couple of weeks ago, if you will, that earlier in this chapter, Jesus had a confrontational encounter with the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leadership of that day in which Jesus walked on earth. And in this passage, earlier in Matthew 15, Jesus rebuked them sharply. Look back just a few verses at verses 7 through 9 of Matthew 15. Jesus says to the Pharisees, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Christ sharply rebuked the Pharisees and the people of God who were hypocritical of heart. Christ rebuked the Jews. And also remember what Jesus said to the crowd and his disciples, the ultimate reason why he rebuked them. Look at verse 11. He said to the crowd, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Well, whatever does he mean by that? Look at verse 18, as we saw. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Jesus says the problem with the Jews, and by the way, it's the same problem with us, is a heart problem. The problem with the Jews is that their hearts were corrupt, and what came out of their hearts, went to their mouths, was spewed out, causing all kinds of conflict and ruin. Jesus says this is the biggest problem, and this is why you Jews, you Israel, you people of Abraham are so defiled. Well, Jesus, in verse 21, is now withdrawing from that place where he had that confrontation, and he's going to the Gentiles. Where does he go now? Not to some other people of the land of Israel, but he goes up north to the Gentiles. Verse 21 says he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon is modern-day Lebanon, just to the north of Israel, about 50 miles away from the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus had been ministering. And so after Jesus confronted the Jewish leadership of their defilement of heart, he now turns towards those who were considered by the Jews to be the most defiled people of all, the Gentiles, including the Canaanites, who lived up north in Tyre and Sidon. I love how David Platt, Pastor David Platt, who pastors in the Virginia, Washington, D.C. area, I love how he explains the situation. He says, the disciples' world had just been rocked when Jesus turned their thinking upside down about what makes someone clean. And now he takes them into Gentile territory, a place filled with unclean people, according to the standard Jewish view. 
Oh, Matthew's brilliant the way he lays this out. He tells you Jewish leaders, you're all defiled because of your hearts. And where is his next stop? Gentile land. He's going to go to the Canaanites. And while he's in that land, Jesus was approached by a desperate woman. Look at verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. Now consider carefully the person who approached Jesus here. She was a Canaanite woman, verse 22 says. Jesus was approached by one of the God-rejecting, Israel-hating, cursed enemies of God's people. My friends, the contrast between this gal and the Pharisees from earlier in this chapter could not be more stark. Think about it. They were Jews. She was a Gentile. Still worse, she was a Canaanite. They were teachers of the law of Moses. Her people once fought against Moses. They had the promises of God. Her people were cursed by Noah, God's man of promise. They were the people of God. Her people were God's enemies. And the contrasts just go on and on. But just the same, this woman came to Jesus in verse 22 with utter desperation. Evidently, she had heard about Jesus and what he was doing and teaching. After all, news of him and his incredible miracles undoubtedly spread far and wide, even up into the Gentile lands. And what's more, she seemed to actually somehow, some way, grasp who Jesus was. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. You have to know something to call Jesus in that day the son of David. She knew of King David, the old Jewish king. She evidently knew of the promises God had made to King David, of a descendant who would sit upon his throne forever. And she eventually, or excuse me, she evidently ex recognized Jesus here as this Jewish Messiah who had finally arrived in light of those promises that God had made. And now, there is... So much that we don't know about what this woman knew, but what we do know is that she came to the son of David and she asked him for mercy. And the reason for her desperation is one we can all understand, I think, at least grasp that this was quite painful. Her daughter was severely oppressed by a demon. Now we've talked about demons before, so I won't belabor that today. But what I do want to say is that I think it is amazing how Human fear and suffering can make us forget the ethnic boundaries around us that are there in our fallen condition. And this woman, setting aside all borders as a Canaanite, came to the one person who could free her daughter from her agony and oppression, Jesus Christ, the son of David. But Jesus did not answer her. Not even a word, verse 23 says. What? How could he not answer her? I mean, he's already healed so many people. 
He's even already healed some Gentiles. Remember back in chapter 8 when he healed the servant of a Roman centurion? Well, why would he not answer her? Does he not care about this woman? This is Jesus we're reading about here, right? Why would he not even speak to her? Well, my friends, we have already read the end of the story. And you know what Jesus does. So the real question is, why does Jesus wait? Why does he wait? And if you have not picked this up already in this gospel, my friends, please grasp it now that Jesus sometimes lets people wait in order that he might teach. And teaching is exactly what he's doing here. Notice the end of verse 23. It says, And the disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The disciples came and they begged Jesus to send her away, for she's crying after us. This expression, crying after us, seems to convey the idea that they were walking along, and as they were walking along, this woman kept following them with continued cries for mercy. And perhaps, if I'm stepping into their shoes, just perhaps, out of sheer annoyance and irritation, the disciples wanted Jesus to make her stop. And their words in verse 23 could be understood as actually saying, send her away by meeting her request, by healing her. Jesus, just give her what she wants so she'll stop pestering us. That is grammatically possible here. And it seems to actually fit the passage where one considers Christ's response in the next verse, verse 24. But whatever the nature of their request, Christ's disciples wanted this woman to stop crying out and asking for his help. After all, my friends, can you imagine, can you just imagine walking from one place to the next, hearing such a desperate cry for help over and over again by the same gal while watching, watching the only one who could do anything for her ignore her. But the teacher was teaching. And he answered them in verse 24 by saying, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, Jesus was sent to do ministry to the Jews, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was Israel's Messiah. Do you remember Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where it says to Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And the Jews, like Christ's disciples of that day, would have understood words like his people to be a clear reference to them, not to any of the Canaanites. And remember, remember a few chapters ago when Jesus had formally sent out his disciples for gospel ministry. He says in chapter 10, verse 5, that Jesus sent out his 12, instructing them, saying, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His primary mission while he was on earth walking and doing his healing work was to be there for the Jews. But understand, my friends, in responding this way to this woman with such stern disregard for this Canaanite woman's need, Jesus was actually with great effect about to teach them the very opposite thing. That though he was to come to the Jews first, his salvation indeed would be for all people who place faith in him. 
Galilean and Canaanite, Jew and Gentile. Now, notice this woman's persistence in verse 25. It says, she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The word for knelt is commonly used in the New Testament for worship. There's some sense of recognition of him in a, in a, in a higher way than she had normally had for other people. We can't say too much, but we, she at least prostrated herself reverencing Christ in this way. This woman, she came to Jesus, recognizing his high status. She bowed down before him, and she simply asked, Lord, help me. Now, this reminds us of the previous encounter which Jesus had back in chapter 8 with the leper. Another desperately separated group of people. It says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 2, that a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And then Jesus says, I will be clean. And with such, such simple humility now here in chapter 15, with heart and body recognizing who Jesus was, this woman asked Jesus to help her. She wanted healing for her daughter from the only one who could cast out her daughter's demon. But Christ's answer is so stern and shocking, isn't it? He says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now this statement seems to confirm all that the Jews, it seems to confirm all that his disciples, no doubt, it seems to confirm all that even the Pharisees knew to be true in that day. That the Canaanites were not on equal footing with the Jews. That it was the Jews who were the sons and daughters of God, and the Gentiles were not. So once again, we have to ask, how could Jesus say this? How could he tell this needy woman that she was so undeserving to receive his gift of healing? How could he utter such words of separation to someone who is in such dire need? Does God have no love for non-Jews? For those other peoples who are alienated from him? Does God not love his enemies? Well, my friends, Jesus is setting the table for us here for an astonishing truth that he was about to reveal to this woman, to his watching disciples, and to us, his readers today. That the one thing that ultimately matters is not one's history, it's not one's background, it's not one's ethnicity or one's pedigree. The one thing that ultimately matters is a right faith in a right object. This Canaanite woman, she responded with some remarkable words. Look at verse 27. She said, wow, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her. You can see right into her heart. He sees right into her. He answers her, oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Let me paraphrase this amazing woman of faith. 
Yes, Lord. I fully admit that we Canaanites are like dogs in comparison to your special people. For they have all of the promises and have God's law as their guide. And I fully confess that the Messiah was promised to them as your beloved people. And I know that my people have fought them at seemingly every turn. But Lord, your table is so great. And your mercy is so bountiful. Can't the dogs at least eat the crumbs that fall from your table? There is no pride in this woman. Only humility. Notice there is no reference to her rights. There is no reference to her righteousness. There is no reference to her rightness or the rightness of her people. Only an acknowledgement of her other worthiness. She says, yes, Jesus, I am a dog. But dogs get crumbs, don't they? All the same, she asks for crumbs. For just a little sliver of the mercy of God. And my friends, she receives far more than crumbs. For Jesus finally shocks everyone present that day, and he says, Megale su epistus. Great is your faith. Great is your faith. It is large because you have found the right object. Her faith was great because she had found the appropriate object in which to place her faith. For she had put her faith in Jesus himself, the son of David. And in announcing these words, Jesus reveals a little more to his disciples. That what matters is not whether one is an Israelite or a Canaanite, but whether one trusts in Christ's Savior to all his people, Jew and Gentile alike. And this woman, so desperate, walked away with a daughter who was healed. My friends, no one is too separated from God to be saved by God. Now, this passage should inform a Christian's understanding of at least three important areas. It should inform our understanding of at least three important areas. First, this passage should inform our understanding of salvation. My dear friends, you may have been tempted to ask in your heart, have I done too much to displease God? Have I gone too far? Have, have I committed too many sins and too great of wrongs? Have I made God so appalled with me that I am beyond hope? Is, is my past too ugly to be redeemed? Are my mistakes too many? Are my sins too severe? Have I hurt too many people? Have I made too big of a mess of it? Has my rebellion been too terrible? And my friends, at that, I plead with you to accept and believe this truth, that no one is too separated from God to be saved by God. The dirtiest of us can be washed whiter than snow. 
King David. Remember this woman came and said, son of David to Jesus. Well, King David himself, the king of Israel from whom the Messiah would come, King David was an adulterer. He was a murderer. And in confession to God in Psalm 51, verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. No one is too separated from God to be saved by God. Not David, and my friend, not you. Now, my friend, understand, your situation is terrible. In fact, it's as bad as, you've, it's as, bad as you thought. In fact, it, it's worse than you thought. Your situation is extraordinarily bad, yet you can be washed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, the same Paul who says, of sinners, I am foremost or I am chief. Paul, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning of verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous, that's us, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's us. None of us will inherit the kingdom of God because we're unrighteous. And then he says, such were some of you. There were those things. But then he says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Yes, my friends, your situation is bad. My situation is terrible. We are unrighteous before God. That is us. But in Christ, as the power of the Spirit works in his people, leading them to put faith in Christ, we can now say if we know him, that's who we were. So we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Don't stand far off from God, but run to the Savior who welcomes you near. Jesus Christ, the one who said those words to that Canaanite woman, would, within a short amount of time, go to a cross, shed his blood to pay the price, not just for believing Jews, but for that Canaanite woman and other Canaanites like me and you, if we know him, to shed his blood to pay for her sins, my sins, your sins. Three days later, he rose from the dead so that all his believers who have repented and turned to him in faith would be saved, would be washed, would be sanctified, would be justified, or as David said, would be washed whiter than snow. So, the gospel is the good news that Jesus did that for you. Will you believe? Secondly, this passage 
should inform our understanding of racial and ethnic boundaries. Now, our world tries to fix problems like this merely through greater education and improved social policies and even scorn toward those who haven't woken up. But as important as education and just policies are, such tunnel thinking only leads people towards greater self-righteousness as they begin to believe that they have arrived, so to speak, on those important issues. And their self-congratulating pats on the back actually make them miss the greater and far more important issue that is at play with all of these racial and ethnic boundaries around us. And here it is, that we are all of us selfish and discriminatory at heart, seeking advantages for our own tribes, our own kinds, whether those tribes be racial or economic or political. For our sickness runs deep. And they miss that altogether. They miss what Jesus says in 1519, that out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. All of these evil thoughts about other people, all of these evil thoughts that make them a little bit lower, all of these evil thoughts come right from our broken hearts. And they miss that when they're only focused on education and social policy. What's more, even with all the education and all the social policy in this world, these problems persist. The Jew versus Canaanite spirit remains even today as people cling to their tight little respective tribes, only hearing what's uttered in their own little echo chambers and generally seek first the welfare of their own. And after thousands of years of human existence, fallen people still in 2021 seek first for themselves, followed closely by those who are just like themselves. This is a universal problem that goes much deeper than the current issues of this day. And that means that this world's solution is utterly lacking. But the true solution one which still awaits its complete accomplishment is an inward transformation for each tribe. The humble cry of faith for mercy from God is the first sledgehammer blow to racial and ethnic boundaries. You see, as it was once said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And all sinners of all kinds, of all stripes, who've committed all manners of sins and with all sorts of life histories, all sinners are welcome to come to Jesus there at his cross and seek his solution to our request for help. That the only way that any of us could be saved, whether Canaanite, Hittite, Jebusite, Israelite, 
black, brown, white, red, American, Central American, Arab, you name it. The only way that any of us could be saved is to look upon the crucified Savior Jesus and confess, my sins put him there. Jesus, thank you, I believe it. That is the first sledgehammer blow that all people may come to the cross. And the next blow comes when God's people, Christians of all kinds, learn to recognize and even enjoy, learn to recognize and even enjoy the peace that Christ has brought to peoples, plural. The peace that Christ has brought to peoples through his death and resurrection. The second blow comes when we begin to grasp and embrace gladly the peace that Jesus Christ brings to a plurality of peoples through his death and resurrection. Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you, Gentiles, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he may create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In America, we have a saying. It's on our currency. It says, e pluribus unum. It means out of many, one. It's not true, and it has never been true in this country. But in the church, out of many, one is becoming true more and more as the gospel goes forth. Because God takes people of all different kinds and he makes them one. And that is something not only to recognize, but to embrace with joy. That's the second blow. That's the second blow that breaks down the distinctions. And the final killing blow to racial and ethnic boundaries will occur at the end of days when Jesus will be praised by all his people who are made up of all peoples unified together before him. For it says in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. My friends, part of growing as a Christian is understanding that one of the best delights ahead of you is not that you're going to walk on golden streets, but it's that you, with your brothers and sisters from a myriad of people groups from around this world, from throughout the centuries, are going to stand hand in hand, and you are going to say, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We will be unified in that day fully. 
And we are moving towards that now. So this problem is a problem, and God's solution is the solution. And third, this passage this morning should inform our understanding of prayer. This humble Canaanite woman came to Jesus, acknowledged him as the Christ, asked for his help, and then kept on asking. My friends, God at times makes us wait when we ask. The teens and I, in our youth foundations class on Sunday mornings, have been studying through the book of Genesis. And today, we considered Isaac and Rebekah, who prayed for a son for 20 years before God answered them with the birth of Jacob and Esau. 20 years they prayed, and they, they kept praying because they relied on God's incontrovertible, unbreakable promise that they would have an offspring. And their faith was proved true. God answered their prayer with yes. God, he sometimes lets his people wait to fan into flame their trust, to fan into flame their hope, to fan into flame their expectation and even delight over his answer. I like how John Calvin explained why Christ ignored the Canaanite woman at first. He said, We see that the design of Christ's silence was not to extinguish the woman's faith, but rather to wet her zeal and inflame her ardor. His waiting made her thirst and hunger for it more and press even more, rely even more, and have even that much more delight when Jesus finally gave her the yes. And also know, my friends, that God honors persistence in prayer. The Canaanite woman kept on asking, and God was faithful to this woman of faith. Now, of course, this does not mean that we can always expect God to give us precisely what we want when we ask him persistently. But it does mean that when we ask, with persistent faith in his promises, we can expect him to answer in the very best way. So, humbly pour your hearts out to God, the God who cares for you, and don't give up on your prayers because God loves to help all of his beloved people. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, teach us. Help us to learn from the ways of your Son. Help us to, help us to see the willingness of your Son to bring salvation to even the worst of sinners. Help us to see, Father, how Jesus Christ has torn down the walls that divide people over race and economics and background. And Lord, help us to see the openness that we have to come to you in prayer, knowing that with persistence you will answer and only strengthen us through it. Lord, help us to see these wonderful things. Be with your people, Lord, as we conclude this service with song and benediction. Help us, Lord, to be pondering these things as we go from here today. And may you be glorified in all that is being done in your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.